be seated. I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And uh, we're going to be looking at this morning at verses 14 through 16. Verses 14 through 16. And so I'm going to read those verses for us once again. And if you do not have a copy of Scripture with you this morning, I encourage you to look around uh, where you're seated and you should find a Bible there. And you'll find our passage on page 1003, 1003. Hebrews chapter 4, and I'll begin reading for us in verse 14. This is God's Word. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. Well, currently we are walking through a series entitled Greater Than, and so far as we've been looking at the book of Hebrews, we've seen that Jesus is greater than the prophets, He is greater than the angels, He's greater than Moses, and this morning in our text, the author of Hebrews will make the argument that Jesus is greater than the priesthood of the Old Covenant. Now, as the author of Hebrews begins to discuss the high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus, in many ways we are getting to the heart of the book of Hebrews. So, Hebrews is comprised of 13 chapters, and chapters 4 through 10 focus on the high priestly ministry of Jesus. So, 13 chapters, and chapters 4 through 10, a significant portion of the book, really in the heart of of the book, the author of Hebrews is focusing on the high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus. And so we're going to spend several weeks considering Jesus, our great high priest. Now, why would the author of Hebrews want us to know that Jesus is our high priest? There are no high priests today. In fact, with the destruction of the Jewish temple in AD 70, There have been no high priests since that point. So for centuries, there have been no high priests. So why is the author of Hebrews so compelled that we understand what it means that Jesus is our great high priest? For that matter, some of you may be wondering, what is a high priest? And so, in order to understand what the author of Hebrews is addressing here, we need to remember that in writing this letter, the author of Hebrews is writing to a Jewish congregation that was very well acquainted with the Old Testament Scriptures. And we need to return back to the Old Testament Scriptures to find the original historical context in which high priests function. And so in doing so, we remember that since the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, fellowship between God and humanity has been broken. Sin resulted in a deep chasm between God and His creation. But in the Old Testament, God began to restore this relationship. And He did so in particular by pursuing a certain people and constituting a nation, the nation of Israel. 
He declared Israel to be his people, and he entered into covenant relationship with them. And this covenant relationship was made possible in large part through the mediating office of priest. The priest represented the people before God, and in particular, they would offer sacrifices, blood sacrifices, animal sacrifices on behalf of the people before God so that they might be forgiven of their sins. Now, among the many priests, there was one office of the priesthood that played a very special role, and that was the great high priest, the office of the great high priest. God gave the high priest the very important responsibility of entering into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. And as the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, he would offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people of Israel. In this way, the high priest functioned as the main representative between God and his people. And the author of Hebrews wants us to know here in this section in the book of Hebrews that although the Old Testament priest, the priest of the Old Covenant, played a very significant and important role in terms of the relationship between God and the people of Israel, Jesus is now our high priest, and his high priestly ministry surpasses that of any of the previous priests who came before him. And so in these important verses that we'll look at this morning, just a few verses here, we learn a couple of things about Jesus' high priestly ministry, and we learn how to respond to Jesus' high priestly ministry. So with this in mind, I want us to look at our passage in four parts, okay? And this, this is our outline for this morning. So if you're taking notes, these are our four points. First, we'll consider Jesus is the exalted high priest. Jesus is the exalted high priest. Second, therefore hold fast your confession. Third, Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. Fourth, therefore draw near to the throne of grace. All right, so let's look at the first part of our text this morning. Our first point, Jesus is the exalted high priest. Look there in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Now notice here in verse 14 how immediately the author of Hebrews begins to establish Christ's supremacy. He writes, since we have a great high priest. There were other priest, there were other high priests in Israel's history, but Jesus is the great high priest. I may have misspoken earlier when I was speaking in the Old Testament context and spoken of some of the high priests in the Old Testament as the great high priest, but in fact, in the Old Testament, there were no great high priests. There were only high priests. This is the only time that the high priest is referred to in the Bible as the great high priest. Jesus is the only one who is referred to as the great high priest. In other words, his priestly ministry exceeds that of all the priests who have come before him. And why is Jesus identified as the great high priest? Well, at least in part because of what is said next about Jesus. Notice there, 
Since we have a great high priest, here it is, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So Jesus, when he offered himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, God raised him from the dead. And then God welcomed him into his presence as Jesus ascended. He passed through the heavens into the presence of God. And there God exalted him by seating him at his right hand where Jesus rules and reigns forever. And so in this way, God was giving his divine stamp of approval on Jesus' atoning sacrifice for our sins. In this way, God was declaring that Jesus' sacrifice was complete, that it was perfect, that the work had been done, that the victory was complete. You know, we don't do this very often anymore because now we use debit cards, but if you were to write a check and then you were to go to the bank and cash that check, oftentimes the teller will check your ID to make sure you're the right person, and then they will check your bank account to ensure that you have sufficient funds, and if everything checks out, then they will cash your check. You see, my friends, at the cross, Jesus was offering, he was writing a check, he was making a payment for the debt that we owe against God for our sins. And when God raised him from the dead, and when he ascended him into heaven, and when he exalted him by seating him at his right hand, God was giving his divine stamp of approval, his signature on Jesus' atoning work to say, the work is complete, the payment is in full, the sacrifice has been made. No human priest No earthly priest can make such a claim. Their priestly work in the Old Testament, although it was significant, it never received such divine heavenly approval from God. But Jesus, after having offered the perfect sacrifice for sins, passed through the heavens into the very presence of God, and he invites us now to join him there. So here we see that Jesus is the exalted, he is the transcendent, he is the victorious high priest who has passed through the heavens. Second point, therefore hold fast your confession. This is the second point, therefore hold fast your confession. Look there in verse 14 again. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession. Now, we've noted this a number of times in our series that this is the great temptation that these Jewish Christians are facing. At some point, they have made a confession. They have confessed their faith in Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord. But now they are enduring some significant persecution, and as a result, they are tempted to renounce their faith in Jesus and to return to Judaism. And the author of Hebrews here is reminding them that the Levitical priesthood of the Old Covenant, which they're tempted to go back to, that it cannot provide what Jesus has already accomplished. 
that Jesus' atoning sacrifice for their sins is perfect, that it's complete, that it's received the divine approval of God Himself, that He has passed through the heavens, and by virtue of His atoning sacrifice, He now offers us access into the very presence of God. And only Jesus can do this. And so the author of Hebrews is reminding them, and us, he's warning them, and he's warning us, if you forsake Jesus, you possess no remedy for the guilt and the penalty of your sin. You cut yourself off from the presence of God. Therefore, hold fast your confession. Do not relinquish your confession and your faith in Christ. You know, if I were to walk up to you on the street and ask you this question, it may seem strange, but in the context of Hebrews chapter 4, it is entirely appropriate and relevant. Is Jesus your great high priest? Have you confessed Him to be your Savior, your Lord, your high priest who has offered the atoning sacrifice for your own sin? Oh, my friends, if not, I would encourage you even this morning to trust in Him, to acknowledge that you are a sinner, that you cannot save yourself, but that He has offered the perfect atoning sacrifice for your sins and that He is your great high priest. Only Jesus can reconcile you to God. Only Jesus can grant you access into the presence of God. And if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus as your great high priest, then hear the words of the author of Hebrews this morning. Hold fast your confession. Do not relinquish VIP access into the very presence of God for temporary comforts and the cheap affirmations of this world. All of that is passing and fleeting. But Jesus offers you eternal presence, eternal access into the very presence of God. So, Jesus is the exalted high priest. Therefore, let us hold fast our confession. Third point, Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. Look there in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So one of the things we've said that we want to to do in this series in Hebrews, and one of the things that the author of Hebrews is attempting to accomplish in writing this book, is that we would behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We would behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And this verse here, verse 15, is so important for us to understand Jesus. This verse does speak to the person of Jesus. It speaks to the work of Jesus. But I want you to notice that in this verse, the author of Hebrews is speaking to the heart of Jesus. He's revealing to us the heart of Jesus, the disposition of Jesus towards us. And what the author of Hebrews reveals here is that not only is Jesus as our high priest transcendent, not only is he exalted, but he is also tender. 
He is sympathetic with our weaknesses. And why? Notice there in the text. He's not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, here's why, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So although Jesus has passed through the heavens, although He is transcendent and exalted, He is not distant. He is not aloof. He is not indifferent to our suffering or to our pain or to our difficulties. He understands our weaknesses. He knows our weaknesses. And most importantly, He sympathizes with our weaknesses. In every way, He has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Years ago, I uh, would go and visit my family physician on a regular basis, but uh, sometimes I would have to go see a specialist. And as I went to see this specialist, he was very helpful, um, but I did notice as I went to see him that in his interactions with his office staff or with his nurses or even sometimes with his patients, he would be harsh, gruff, rude, and it was kind of a surprise. Um, So I went to him several times, and he helped me. And then there were a number of years where I didn't need to go see him, so I was thankful for that. And uh, not just because of he was gruff and rude, but um, I was happy to be healthy. But after a while, I needed to go back to see him. Several years had passed, I needed to go back to see him. And when I went back to see him, I quickly noticed that there was a marked difference in the way that he was interacting with his office staff and with his nurses and even with his patients. He was more kind. He was more understanding. He was more sympathetic. And one of the nurses shared with me while I was there that in the time that had elapsed, when I hadn't seen him in those several years, he had actually been in a really tragic car accident. As I understand it, it was, it was so serious, the car accident was so serious that it really threatened his life. They didn't know if he was going to live or not. And he endured a very long recovery. And at certain points, those who were caring for him and attending to him weren't even sure if he was going to be able to return to medicine or be able to practice medicine anymore. And you see, what had happened from the time that I'd first seen him to then several years in, in the future when I saw him was that he had learned not just what it means to be a doctor, and he was a good doctor, he had also learned what it meant to be a patient. And it had completely changed the way he interacted with others. Listen, my friends, in Jesus' high priestly ministry to us, Jesus didn't just read a textbook on what it's like to be a human in a fallen world. Jesus does not just have academic knowledge of our weaknesses and our frailties. Jesus has firsthand experience. He has suffered as we suffer. He has felt pain as we feel pain. He has been tempted as we are in every way. And therefore, He is compassionate. He is sympathetic. He is tender towards us in our weaknesses. It is vital that you understand that about Jesus if you are to relate to Him properly. 
Dan Ortland, in his book entitled Gently, Gentle and Lowly, writes these words, quote, Our tendency is to feel intuitively that the more difficult life gets, the more alone we are. As we seek further into pain, we, seek, we sink further into felt isolation. The Bible corrects us. Our pain never outstrips what He Himself shares in. We are never alone. That sorrow that feels so isolating, so unique, was endured by Him in the past and is now shouldered by Him in the present. Contrary to what we expect to be the case, therefore, the deeper into weakness and suffering and testing we go, the deeper Christ's solidarity with us. As we go down into pain and anguish, we are descending even deeper into Christ's very heart, not away from it, end of quote. And so, my friends, when we're struggling, understand this. Jesus is never in, in heaven lobbing useless platitudes and cliches, right? No, Jesus is with us in our suffering. He understands our pain and our weakness and our humanity and our frailty. He has firsthand experience. This is the, and this is what the author of Hebrews wants us to understand. This is the heart of Jesus. This is the disposition of Jesus towards us. Now, I know some might protest and say, yeah, but how could Jesus really understand temptation? if he never sinned? I mean, how can you really understand temptation and how difficult it is unless you succumb to it? Years ago, C.S. Lewis imagined this objection and he addressed it. I want to read you what C.S. Lewis wrote. He writes, quote, "'A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means.'" This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. This is why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because He was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. End of quote. And this is the mystery of the incarnation, right? That Jesus as God could not and would not sin. But as man, he felt the full brunt of temptation. Jesus genuinely agonized in his battle against sin. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane that he, he shed uh, drops of blood as he agonized over the will of the Father in his life. He fought the battle. He, he waged war against temptation. And whereas we know the experience of being tempted for a time period and then giving in, Jesus never gave in, and so the temptation ran its full course all the way through, and he felt the full brunt of it, unlike any person who has ever lived. No one has been tempted or felt the deceptive power of the enemy like the Lord Jesus. And so his sinless perfection does not make him 
unable to sympathize with us, but in fact positions him to sympathize with us all the more because he knows the full brunt of temptation and he can sympathize with our plight. But notice this. Not only, and this is really good news, not only has Jesus in every respect been tempted as we are, and that's glorious good news because he can sympathize with us. But notice this. In addition, the author tells us that he is without sin. He never gave in to temptation. What this means is that Jesus is uniquely positioned as our high priest to intercede on our behalf. He is uniquely positioned to offer himself as a perfect substitute as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And listen, my friends, this is in fact what we need. Philip Hughes writes these words. Listen to this. Quote, what we need is not a fellow loser, but a winner. Not one who shares our defeat, but one who is able to lead us to victory. Not a sinner, but a savior. And that is who the Lord Jesus is for us. Yes, he's able to sympathize with us in our battle against sin, but he in no way is trapped by that sin. If we picture ourselves in a pit battling against sin, Jesus can sympathize with us. In many ways, he's in the pit with us, sympathizing with us, compassionate towards us. But in no way is he bound by that sin, nor the pit of that sin. He can rise up above it and rescue us and deliver us because he never sinned. And that is what Jesus Christ has come to do for us in his high priestly ministry. And listen, not only is he able to deliver us from that pit of sin, this is the beautiful thing about this verse. He desires to. Because he is sympathetic with our plight. So Jesus is a not only exalted high priest, he is a sympathetic high priest. Fourth and finally, therefore draw near to the throne of grace. Therefore draw near to the throne of grace. Look there in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So since Jesus is transcendent, since he has passed through the heavens and exists in the very presence of God, and since he is tender and he's sympathetic and compassionate, with our, and compassionate towards our frailty and our humanity, the author of Hebrews exhorts us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Now, of course, a throne represents power. A throne represents authority. How much more, if an earthly throne represents power and authority, how much more does a heavenly throne represent power and authority? This is the throne of God that is being spoken of here in Hebrews. In spring of 2020, so a little bit over a year ago, I did a series in the book of Esther. And as we were walking through the book of Esther, and you might recall this, we saw that at the climax of the story of Esther, 
is this situation in which Esther is being called by her people to go before, to approach the king and his throne. And so Esther has this great dilemma. Will she approach the king or will she not? And Esther's terrified to do so. And the king is her husband, right? King Xerxes, the king of Persia. But here's the problem. In Persia, the law was that no one was allowed to enter into the king's presence without an invitation, even his own wife. And so if someone entered into the king's presence without an invitation, then the king had a choice to make. Either he could extend his scepter and they would be received and welcomed, or he could withhold his scepter and they would be executed. Thankfully, in this situation, Esther prays, she has the people pray, she fasts for three days, and then she courageously makes the decision to enter into the king's presence, and thankfully, the king receives her. But recognize, my friends, here, the author of Hebrews is not talking about the throne of the king of Persia. The author of Hebrews is talking about the throne of the eternal living God of the universe. And the author of Hebrews wants us to know that if we are in Christ, when we approach the throne of the God of the universe, we will never encounter a throne of wrath, but we will always encounter a throne of grace. And by virtue of the atoning sacrifice of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus, who sympathizes with us in our weakness, we can rush into the throne room of God with bold and joyful confidence, knowing that He's ready for us, that He welcomes us, that He receives us. And what do we find when we get there? Notice what the text tells us in verse 16. When we come to the throne of grace, we should expect to find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Do you see how the author of Hebrews here is attempting to clear away every obstacle that would keep us from experiencing the power and grace of God in our lives. We all have needs. All of us are a complexity of needs and um, limitations and weaknesses and fears and anxieties and confusion. And some of us might fear that God is uninterested maybe even a bit annoyed by all our weakness. And the author of Hebrews says, no, that's not true. In fact, the Son of God took on flesh and became man so that He could sympathize with you in all your weaknesses and limitations. But then others of us might say, yeah, but I know I'm a needy person. I know I know I have many needs. I'm I'm grateful that Jesus sympathizes with me in my need. 
but I don't deserve God's help. And the author of Hebrews says, you're right. You don't deserve God's help. And that's why it's not called a throne of effort or a throne of works or a throne of merit or a throne of achievement. It's called a throne of grace. And you know what you get when you go to the throne of grace? You get what you don't deserve. And it comes with abundance. And it just flows over and over in every time of need. What you should expect when you come to the throne of grace with a high priest who sympathizes with your weaknesses is mercy and grace and more mercy and more grace and more mercy and more grace to meet you in every time of need. That's what our sympathetic high priest offers us. And do you realize what this is at the end of the day? It is an invitation to pray. That's what the author of Hebrews is talking about, right? Here's these Christians. They're being challenged by persecution. They're tempted to throw in the towel, to renounce their faith in Jesus. What is the author of Hebrews calling them to? He's calling them to pray. There's a throne of grace. Go to it. Lay yourself before it. Beg for grace and mercy in your time of need, and Jesus will see you through. And wouldn't it be a beautiful thing if by God's grace we became a people both personally and corporately who lived under the shadow of the throne of grace. We just pitched a tent there and we dwelt there. In the mornings when we get up, we set aside time to seek the Lord in His Word and in His prayer and prayer. And then as we get up from that time during the day, we just, we remain there just in a spirit of prayer. Lord, I need help. I need grace. I need mercy. And then as a people, we gather together at certain times as a people to go, right, like right now and worship on Sunday mornings, to go to the throne of grace. And we're just a people who live under the shadow of the throne of God's grace. And if we do so, we can be confident that our high priest, the Lord Jesus, will meet us in every, every need. And he will provide all the grace, all the mercy, all the help along the way. How will these people persevere? How will they persevere when, when people are threatening? That if they don't renounce Christ, their business will close. They'll lose their job. Their families will reject them. How will they persevere? How will we persevere when our marriage is falling apart? When a loved one passes away? When there's that relational conflict that just won't go away? When we are so discouraged by our ongoing battles with sin, how will we persevere? 
the author of Hebrews says, the way you persevere is by knowing the Lord Jesus, and in particular, knowing his high priestly ministry. He has granted you an access to God which you can't grant yourself through his atoning sacrifice. He is sympathetic with you in every weakness, in every need, in every frailty. And if you come to God through him and lay yourself before the throne of grace, he will meet your every single need. And he will enable you to persevere. And you will be faithful to the end. Let's praise God for sending his son, the Lord Jesus, to be our great high priest. And by his high priestly ministry, giving us access to him and enabling us to be faithful to him until our dying day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus and for his life and death and resurrection. We thank you, Lord, that not only in the scriptures do we learn about who Jesus is in his person and in his work, but Father, we thank you that you have revealed to us in your word his heart towards us. I pray, Father, that by your grace you would take this passage as it has, is intended to do and that you would tear down and remove any obstacles that would keep us from experiencing your power and grace in our lives. We do pray, Lord, that we would be a people who dwell under the shadow of your throne and that we would experience, as a result, your grace and your mercy in all our need. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray.